welcome to the show called Let's Talk Homeschool. This is episode number 87, part four in our series called Eight Who Lived Like They Were Dying. Today's show is the biography of John So he has all of this criticism that he had to face repeatedly. He said, hard things were often spoken to my face. One dear friend, for instance, said, you should not have left. You should have stood at the post of duty till you fell. And he had already given up his wife and his child. The following presentation is a production of Apologia Mission, which is the 501c3 nonprofit arm of Apologia Educational Ministries. We hope you'll enjoy this message by Pastor Jerry McCarran. This audio recording is just one in the series entitled Eight Who Lived Like They Were Dying. Each one is based on the corresponding biography published by Youth with a Mission. For more information about Apologia Mission, please visit our website at www.apologiamission.org. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came until the into the province of Asia. And I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of the Jews. And you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful, uh, hesitate to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. And I've declared to both Jews and to Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. In the closing verses of that chapter. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Fascinating story. Let's talk to the Father. Father, we are moved by the faith of your servants. Father, our hearts are stirred by the sacrifice they were willing to make. And Father, as we just sort of look at their life, as we have said in the life of Peter and Paul and James and John and even our Lord, and days gone by, these stories sort of help each of us to maybe just look within and evaluate our own faith and our own courage. And so, Father, we're thankful for the power of your word to change cannibals into believers. And thank you, Father, for those who gave their life for this sole purpose. In the name of Christ, amen. If you were to draw a line from... Honolulu, Hawaii, to Sydney, Australia. That line would pass through an island grouping called the New Hebrides Islands. They number about 80. The inhabitants today around in those islands are only probably close to a quarter of a million, 300,000 people. 
They received their, their name by Captain John Cook. In the 18th century, when he was going through that part of the world, and he named them New Hebrides Islands because it reminded him so much of the Hebrides Islands just off of his homeland of Scotland. It wasn't until 1838 that the first missionaries arrived in those islands. Now, Jesus dies around, what, A.D. 32, 33, somewhere in there? to 1834, 1800 years, and they did not know of Christ. In 1834, there were two young men who went to the Hebrides Islands. And as they pushed their little boat ashore, the ship is still in the harbor, the inhabitants, and I may call them natives tonight from time to time, but really that's not an acceptable term today. It's indigenous people, or, but I'm going to use the terminology he used. But the cannibals there, the natives at that time, the people were cannibals. And those two young men pushed their boat ashore. They clubbed them to death, and they ate them. 20 years ago, 20 years later, there's this guy by the name of John Patton who has a heart for those same people. John Patton arrived in the New Hebrides Islands on November the 20th. And he invested his life in that entire region. He was born in 1824. He died in 1907 in Australia. He was born, he was one of 11 children. His father was a man who was, I guess we would call him blue collar. I don't know exactly what all that means. But his father made stockings. And that's the way he supported the family. There's an interesting thing about John Patton. He had a long life, raised in a godly home, but he was one of the first who started an urban mission in downtown Glasgow, Scotland. You see, John Patton had both a theological degree, but he also had a medical degree. And so from about, nine, some of, about the age of 24 to 34, about 10 years, he had a an urban mission to the poor. And there were people who would show up at his mission numbering an average of 700 people every day. And he'd teach them about Jesus and he would help to supply them any help they needed for any sickness that he had. And then God called him to a foreign world and he went to the island of Tana among the New Hebrides Islands along with his wife who was 34 and he labored there in the area of Tana for about four years until he was driven by hostility off of the islands. And then for about another four years he traveled throughout Britain and Canada and America and he issued the trumpet call telling everybody about the possibilities in the New Hebrides and the South Pacific for the name of Jesus. Today, if you go to that particular region, the latest poll shows that about 21% of the people are believers in Christ. 
Then there's about uh, 60% are called nominal Christians. And I don't know exactly what a nominal Christian is. It's like being partially pregnant. Either you are or you're not. But anyhow, they say there's about 60% of them are nominal Christians. Patton died almost 100, about 102 years ago, but you can still see the result of his labors through the years. The people were cannibals when he arrived, uh, and yet he invested his time in learning their language and learning their culture and translating their language uh, into scripture. He built a couple of orphanages. He trained teachers. He translated and printed uh, uh, scriptures and sermons. He ministered to the sick and to the dying. He dispensed medicine every day. He taught them how to use tools, and he sort of introduced to the people then some appropriate technology. And he held worship regularly, and some of them even started showing up. And then he wrote in his, his diary. He, he starts off at Tana, and then he ends up le- uh, leave, uh, spending the rest of his life in a place called uh, Anawa. And in his diary, he wrote, I claimed Anawa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Anawa now worships at the Savior's feet. Anawa was not a big island. It was only about two miles long and seven miles across. But he gave 15 years of his life there in trying to help mobilize these people for Jesus. And then he spent some time traveling the world, getting others to come. In his journal, he, he was among the, uh, the, the early missionaries kept journals and they kept extensive documentation and diaries of all that they did. And uh, there are two volumes that, that he wrote in his autobiography regarding his work. And, and what I want us to do tonight is I want to look at the courage of this man. All of these men and all of these women, we noticed that they had an unbelievable faith and uh, an unbelievable courage. And I want to look at some of the courage that he had. First of all, John had courage in the face of criticism. The criticism that John Patton received were from his closest friends. And the criticism was relentless. There was a man by the name of Dixon who was a religious leader in Scotland at the time. And because he was doing such a good job in, uh, in his ministry among the poor in downtown Glasgow, this man by the name of Dixon was very, very critical of what he was doing. And he was one of the real leaders in, among the believers at that time. And so he really sort of chastised him publicly. And one of the phrases he kept using was, Patton, if you go there, the cannibals, the cannibals, they're going to eat you. Well, That's what happened to the first two missionaries that went to that area. They were eaten. But I love this man Patton as to how he responded to him. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be as soon to die and be laid in the grave and to be eaten by worms. So I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. For in the great day of the resurrection, my body will rise along with yours, and we will see the likeness of our Redeemer face to face. And that was just sort of the spirit that this man had. He has courage. He's getting criticism from every angle. Why are you leaving this ministry? Why are you giving this up? You are successful where you are. Why do you feel that you must go all the way over here and do that? We need you here. And he was getting criticism. He was getting hammered. In fact, in his journal, he wrote, 
The opposition was so strong from nearly all and many of them warm Christian close friends that I was sorely tempted to question whether I was carrying out the divine will or only some headstrong wish of my own. And this also caused me much anxiety and it drove me to the Father in prayer. The second way that I saw his courage as I read his autobiographies and also the works of his sons was not only as he faced criticism, but in the loss of everything. You know, we sing the song, All to Jesus I Surrender, but he sang it and he meant it. He married just before he left for the mission field. He was in his early 30s and he took his wife Mary on this journey to the New Hebrides region. They were three months on board a boat. Now, let me tell you something. I cannot imagine being on board a boat for three months unless you can dine at six o'clock. You know, it's a real nice boat. But these are not real nice boats. And of course, they fought hurricanes and everything else. But three months, uh, they finally make it to Sydney. Then they go on over and they finally decide that they're going to settle on Antana Island. So they built a hut. Now, keep in mind, when they arrived, there was no Motel 6. There was nothing. And when that boat pulled out of that harbor, they weren't coming back. There's no telephone. There's no telegraph. There's no email. There's no mail. And so as you read his journal, you recognize that they went there to die. And it wasn't long after that, and of course his wife did get sick and their infant son, and both of them did die. And he dug the two graves with his own hand, and he put them in the ground at the end of the house that he had built. And he wrote in his diary, he said, My reasons seem for a time almost to give way. But for Jesus and the fellowship he vouchsafed that he promised to me there, I must have gone mad and died beside the lonely grave. And so when you look at the courage of this man, and he felt the call of God, he was willing to go in spite of all the criticism and be willing to lay down everything he had for the cause of Christ. And on top of that, when he came home, there was a boat. There was a time that he prayed for deliverance when the hostilities were so great and we'll touch on that a little bit later. Hostilities were so great, he prayed to God for a, for deliverance, and sure enough, a boat just happened by, and he gets on that boat, and he comes back to Scotland, and he breaks the news to Mary's folks, and they grieve themselves to death, and they never forgave him. The third way in which I saw his courage was that Patton had courage to risk his own health in a foreign land with no doctors and no escape. In his journal, he says, fever attacked me 14 times severely. It took my wife. It took my son. All he had was some very primitive doctors, and he was harassed and surrounded by the cannibals all the time. And and, and I think in one of the earlier lessons, I told you that as I finished reading the works of, um, of Judson, I tossed the book on Nancy's desk, and I had been crying as I read that book. And I ask her, why didn't they give it up and why didn't they go home? And as I read the life of this guy, I wonder, well, many reasons he didn't have a way home. And he would not give up. And he talks about the hurricanes that coming. He's talking about the way he lay sick at night in his hut with a high fever, knowing that the, 
that the natives were outside and they were armed. And so he suffered greatly, but he was trying to lead these people to Christ. Fourthly, Patton had courage in the face of death and the almost constant threat to his life from the hostilities of the people. In the first four years on Tana, when he was all alone, he moved from one life-threatening crisis to the next. And you have to wonder what would keep a man from just sort of snapping. I remember in 1970, uh, I was in a village north of uh, Madras, and I had been there for a couple of three months, and I was all alone. But, but I, I saw this procession of Hindus coming down the road, and I got my camera, and I was out there taking some photos for posterity. And that was an absolute no-no, no, no. and they turned hostile. In a lot of cultures, they believe if you take their picture, you take their soul. And that day I thought they were going to take both me and my camera. They were very, very hostile, yet this guy, he continues to serve. He said on one occasion there were over 500 people with machetes that surrounded my hut. And uh, he just keeps talking about there was no way out, but yet he wanted to be vigilant for God like Paul when he said, I fought a good fight and I finished the course. He was committed to that. And, uh, and you can't help but ex as you read his life that there was not a lot of intervention by God to save him. In his diary, he said, my continuous danger caused me now oftentimes to sleep with my clothes on that I might move at a moment's warning. My faithful dog, Clutha. Clutha was a little Scottish terror. Terror, literally. And it scared them to death. They had never seen a dog before. And so when Clutha would sound the alarm with all the sharp bark, he would grab, grab Clutha and they would go running uh, into the jungle. He said, my enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life. However, calmed or baffled for the moment, there was a wild chief, for example, who followed me around for about four hours one day with a loaded musket in my face. They got muskets from traders who had come there some time before, and often he would threaten me and tell me that he was going to kill me, and I was fully persuaded that, that I was going to die, but I continued to serve my God. He said, one morning at daybreak, I found my house surrounded by armed men and a chief intimated that they had assembled to take my life, seeing that I was entirely in their hands. I knelt down and gave myself body and soul to the Lord Jesus because I knew that was going to be it. And how he resolved it was he would fall down on his knees and pray. And oftentimes when they would have a musket pointed at him, he'd grab the barrel and just point it straight up. And then he'd preach him a sermon and tell him, you you're not being nice to me. I, I, I've been to you. I, I've helped your people. I've done this for you. And in occasions when they had a knife, a machete, he would just grab them by the arm and twist it around. And the whole time he's lecturing them, telling them this is not the way people are supposed to act. And he would talk to them about their hostilities. Great, great man of courage. And, and it was multiplied through the years. And I don't know whether you know it about, but anybody who goes to do mission work, you've got to have a, 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 a certain bit of wildness about you. 
I mean, if you want your life all planned and cataloged and what you expect, forget it. You don't need to go to the mission field because they don't have clocks, they don't have calendars, and they really don't care about your schedule. And there are risks that you run on the field that you don't run any other place. And, and here's a guy who, who knew from the very beginning what he was going to, to have to endure. The fifth cause for courage that I saw was in the face of criticism that he did not have courage to die. When he finally was able to go back on furlough and he was preaching in Canada and in Britain and the United States and in Australia trying to get more people to come and preach Christ, there were people saying, why didn't you stay and die? Do you realize what this would have done for the cause of Christ if you would have been a martyr? How would you like for them to be sending you your support check? Wouldn't you love to have them on your team? And he received unbelievable criticism that you were a coward. You should have stayed your ground. You should have stayed there. And if it means you have to die, that's okay. So he has all of this criticism that he had to face repeatedly. He said, hard things were often spoken to my face. One dear friend, for instance, said, you should not have left. You should have stood at the post of duty till you fell. And he had already given up his wife and his child. So he has all of this criticism that he had to face repeatedly. He said, hard things were often spoken to my face. One dear friend, for instance, said, you should not have left. You should have stood at the post of duty till you fell. And he had already given up his wife and his child. Now let's look right hurriedly at what happened as a result of his willingness to stay and to minister. First of all, the entire island of Onawa at one point turned to Christ. Do you remember the words of Paul in Philippians 1? He says, you know, there's some folks who preach Christ out of envy. And as you read between the lines in the Greek, he's saying, you know, there's some folks out there that have been pretty mean to me. But he said, as long as Christ is being preached, that's okay, I can live with that. And here's the man that's going through all of this and all of this suffering, but the fact that he was able to preach Christ and and then he was able to go, and um, he had some remarkable numbers of people who, who became followers of Christ. And, and then he was able to go and trumpet the sort of the gospel call and get other people to come. And he was able to raise other money for other mission fields. And, and others were assigned to that region. And he said, I claimed Onawa for Jesus, and by the grace of God, Onawa now worships at the Savior's feet. The second thing I noticed as I read the his life was that, that his endurance on the island of Tana resulted in a story that was told by Patton that literally thousands at that time, people turned towards missions. Do you remember during World War II when our guys and gals came home from Germany? Remember what they did when they came home? They came home and said, folks, we need to go back and rebuild that nation, but we need to rebuild it for Jesus' sake. And we had missionaries that went to Germany. We had missionaries that poured out and just went all over Europe. And this is sort of the same thing that happened here when he came back and he told them of the hostilities and the sufferings, but the opportunity that literally by the thousands... They estimated there was something like one in every five ministers at that time resigned their position and headed to the mission field. 
Now, you would think that that would have hurt everything in the other churches, but it didn't. And he goes on to point out in his diary that people who think that when missions is a priority that it hurts a local church, that they have missed it because when a church is committed to missions, the, earth, the church locally grows spiritually and they grow in faith as well because they're sort of holding the rope of those who are in the field. And so he was able to go and encourage others. He said, I was filled with a high passion of gratitude to be able to proclaim at the close of my tour that of all the ministers, one in every six had become a missionary of the cross. And so of all those days and months and years, he spent wondering if he was doing any good when he came back, others picked up the sword of the spirit and they went to the field. He writes in his diary again, he said, nor did the old church cripple it herself because of the loss of their ministers. New waves of generosity passed over the heart of her people. Debts that had burdened many of the churches were swept away from missions. So it sort of gives us some insight to the power. The third effect of Patton's courage was to vindicate the power of the gospel to the hardest, most cruel people. At this particular time in Europe, there was a lot of skepticism that was going on, and people were demeaning the power of the gospel. You remember when Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? It is the power. And the Greek word there is a word dunamis, and we use the word dynamite. Well, it's much stronger than dynamite. But there were a lot of people, church leaders back then, saying, you know, the gospel's not going to make any difference among these pagan people. They're nothing but a bunch of cannibals. They're animistic. They, they have their idols. They, they have their witch doctors. They, they're not going to pay any attention to that. But by his courage, he vindicates the power of the gospel to change anybody. Great, great power. And he wanted to demonstrate that, that only Jesus can change. And he gives a couple of illustrations. First of all, there was this chief on Tana named uh, Koya. He said when he was dying, he came to say farewell. Now, now in a lot of cultures, um, there's something about these people. They know when they're about to die. And we don't. But they do. In Africa, I remember in Botswana, that uh, an old woman. And uh, she knew it was about time for her to die, so she packed up her goodies and and uh, she went out and sat down underneath a baobab tree, and she died. There's something about that culture. A lot of these cultures, they know when they're about to die. And so this guy, this chief Kowia, he realizes he's about to die. So he comes, and he speaks to John Patton. He says, farewell, Missy. Missy was short for missionary. He says, farewell, Missy. I'm very near death now, but we will meet again in Jesus and with Jesus. And so John Patton sustained him, tottering to the place of the graves, the family burial plot, and there he lay down, and he slept in Jesus, and there the faithful, uh, he buried him beside his wife and his children. Thus died a man who had been a cannibal chief, but by the grace of God and the love of Jesus, he was changed, he was transfigured into a character of light and beauty. And so what think you of this, you skeptics back in Scotland, as to the reality of the power of the gospel? I knew that day, and I know now that there's one soul, at least from Tana, to sing the glories of Jesus in heaven and all the beauty when I will meet him again. 
He goes on to talk again about another one, and of course that was Abraham. Abraham was one of the first ones that, that, that he had uh, led to the Lord, and, and he talks about Abraham. He says, you know, when I read or, or hear the shallow objections of the so-called theologians and the fact that a mission effort is nothing but a waste of time and life and money, he said, I'd like for them to come and follow in the footsteps of my dear friend Abraham, nursing the people, feeding them, saving them for the love of Jesus. And then they would learn how many hours it took to convince him and them that Christ can bring them redemption and bring them hope. And so by his courage, he was able to even convert others back home. Now, where did this courage come from? First of all, his courage came from his heavenly father, okay? But I want to talk about his earthly father. Mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and whoever you be. The Lord gave us a command. He said, I want you to nurture your children in my son. And the idea of nurturing is putting in the mouth. And in ancient days, in order to get a child to nurse, they would sometimes put a sweet, rub it on the lips of the child, so the child would start nursing from the mother's breast. And the idea of nurturing was create within your children a hunger full of holy. Isn't that a beautiful thought? You raise your children to know Jesus. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and what Paul says in Ephesians and other passages, what Deuteronomy Moses said, listen, mom and dad, this is our game plan. Whether it's early morning or late at night, I want you to always be teaching your children about God. Now, in America, we've gotten away from that. We hire youth ministers to do that. Then we get ripped at youth ministers who don't do what we think they ought to be doing. We think the Bible school teacher ought to do it. Folks, that Bible school teacher didn't birth that baby. Moms and dads, it is our responsibility to teach them. And so whenever you read this man's life about his dad, I wept. He makes this statement. He says, there was a small room in our house called the closet. It's where my father would go for prayer three times a day and all 11 children knew where daddy was and we reverenced that spot and we learned something profound about God our father and about our daddy the impact of his father was immeasurable here's what he writes he says oh everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be just swept away of all of my memory there would be one thing I would remember. I would remember my father in that sanctuary closet crying out to his heavenly father. Wow. And then there was a time when he was leaving home to go receive his medical training and everything going to Glasgow. He's now in his early 30s, uh, early 20s. From his little hometown village of Totherwald, I, I guess that's the way you pronounce it to this train station at Kilmarnock was 40 miles and he had to walk it. And his father does not know when his son will come back or whether he'll ever see his boy again. He knows he's on a mission. 
and he knows that his son will probably die and he'll never see him face to face. And here's what he wrote some 30 or 40 years later before his death about his dad and about that day. They leave early in the morning walking 40 miles ahead of him and his father's going to begin their journey with him. He says, my dear father, walk with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and his tears and his heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had but happened yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying his hat in his hand. And his lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. And we halted on reaching the appointed parting place, the crossroads. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son, and your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Can you see that father and son at the crossroads? Can you see that old man holding his hat? Can you see the tears? Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer, and in tears we embraced and parted, and I ran off as fast as I could. And when about to turn a corner or bend in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with his head uncovered where I had left him, still looking at me, looking for me, waving my hat, I waved at him. And I rounded the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was so full and so sad that I darted off the road and I wept for a period of time. Then rising up, I climbed a small hill to see if he stood there at the crossroads. And there he stood. And I caught another glimpse of him as he climbed the hill and strained his eyes to look for me in the distance. He could not see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face toward home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. And I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and off by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor my heavenly father, or my father on this earth, or my mother, I wanted to live for my God. Is that the power of prayer? Some of y'all do not know this guy. Some of y'all remember. Y'all remember Joe? I used to go out and spend time with, I forgot Joe's last name now, Redmond. See, some of y'all know him. I used to go out and sit with Joe on his front porch and talk. And Joe always tried to get me to like figs. I never did like figs, but he would give me figs in every, every form. You know, I just, I just couldn't do it. But we sat there one day and we talked. We talked about Joe's life. Joe had lived a pretty rugged life. If you knew Joe, he had, he had boxed, he had fought, and then he had boxed some more and fought some more. And, and then, but he had this little wife about three foot nothing, it kind of brought him around, her and the Lord. But he said, I remember one time as a kid when I came home late at night, and there are two things that I remember so distinctly. 
my father was standing on this front porch, and he said, I hated to hated encounter my dad. But said my dad didn't say anything that day. But I walked in, and as I passed my parents' bedroom, my mother was on her knees praying for me. Do you want to know what saved me? My mama's prayers. And as I look at the life of John Patton, he still remembered his daddy's prayers. You know one thing we lack today? There's some kids never heard mom and dad really pray. They've never seen us on our knees praying. They've never heard us really call out, called their name before the Father. John Patton said that's what saved him and gave him the courage that he needed. So he got courage from his father. He had courage also from what he sensed was a divine call. Very early in life, he kept believing that God was calling him to places where no one else would go. He writes in his diary, he said, I continue to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 28 when he says, go in all the world and preach the gospel. But he said the thing that I remember most was that last phrase, not only going and teaching and baptizing, but when Jesus said, I'm going to be with you always. And that was what was etched on his tombstone. I will be with you always. And so he, he received courage from what he felt was from God, which is rightfully so. And also his courage came from a personal fellowship with Jesus. He spent so much time in the Word, and he spent so much time in prayer that he, he just wanted to exalt his King. He wanted to serve his God. And like Paul, in Philippians 1 and other passages, and 2 Corinthians 11, and what, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, then other passages. The whole idea of the life of Paul and one we read while ago in the book of Acts is for me to live as Christ and to die. That was his life. That was his devotion. And it's no wonder that he made a difference. That he made a difference. And so that, in a nutshell, John Patton. We hope you're enjoying this series. This is Let's Talk Homeschool. The show is sponsored by Apologia Educational Ministries. And as always, we are walking by faith and enjoying the homeschooling adventure of a lifetime.